You might like to turn with me to Psalm 22, which will be found on page 543, page 543 in your pew Bibles. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? O my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer, by night and am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted you and and you delivered them. They cried out to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of Bashan encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey open their mouths wide against me. I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and they cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lion. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will sing to you. You hear the fear of the, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. At the ends of the earth, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All all who go down to the dust will kneel before him, those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn for all he has done. Our second reading is from 1 Peter, 
You'll find it on page 1202, starting at verse 13 of chapter 3. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to, to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit, through whom he went, through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in, in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now, that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from your body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities and powers in in submission to him. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for the evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So many questions. This is one of those passages where it's easy to lose the wood for the trees. It's easy to get bogged down in the weird little things you see on the ground, the little minor things, and lose sight of the beautiful picture. There are genuine questions about this passage, and some of them, I think, there may not be really good answers to just yet. It's one of the great things about being a a creature in God's creation is that you're expected to not know everything. We can know things about God from the Bible, through his word, because of his son, because of the spirit that God promises to those who call out to him. There's some tricky things in here. Maybe you didn't pick them up. I think uh, one of the tricky things, uh, let's have a think about it. Maybe in chapter 3, it would be good to have a Bible open, by the way. These brown ones are in your pews, and the passage is on page 1202. I mean, the obvious one about being weird, and this is of chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison. When did he do that? Who are the spirits? What type of prison is it? 
Is it Azkaban? I don't know. What about chapter 4, verse 1? That he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. If I suffer in my body, am I done with sin? Like the albino guy in that terrible Dan Brown movie with the thing he straps around his thigh to give him pain. So he done with sin? Can that be you? Can that be me? What about baptism that saves you? Is it baptism that saves you? What if you haven't been baptized? Are you really saved? These are just some of the questions that we could be distracted by tonight. Now, I'm convinced there are good things to say about all of them and we'll mention them as we go through. But the big thing that ties the three sections of this passage together, verse 13 to 16, speaking, verses 17 to the end of the chapter, living, and 4, 1 to 6, thinking. The big thing that ties those three things together is following in the footsteps of a Christ who suffers. If you're a Christian, you follow in the footsteps of a Christ, Jesus, who has suffered. And that shapes your heart, your lips, your life, the way you interact with the world and your expectations. Following in the footsteps of a Christ who suffers. Let's look at the first verse, chapter 3, verse 13. Starts with a question. What do you think the answer to the question is? Who's going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Tonight at church, probably no one. In first century Rome, for the Christian living in a Roman society that thought there were many gods and that Christians were pretty much atheists, like if there's a hundred gods and you only worship one and you don't even worship the Caesar, that's pretty much like not believing in any gods. If you're going to do good, which is Peter's code for living life as a Christian, chapter 2 verse 11, 11 live such good lives that though the people around you want to malign you, they've got no excuse but to see your goodness. The good life, the beautiful life, is the one that lives in response to the mercy of God. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Well, maybe someone. By the way, it's important to remember that doing good is different to not doing anything wrong. You know, it's easy to think sometimes that being a Christian, God wants you to not do anything wrong ever. Like, don't speed. Don't get drunk. Don't have sex outside of marriage. There's don't, 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 don't. But actually, people who are called to follow in the footsteps of Christ are saved for a life of doing good. Ephesians 2 verse 10. A life of good works. God's prepared for you. So, get ready to suffer. If you follow Jesus, chapter 3 verse 13, even if you should suffer for what is right, you're blessed. Why are you blessed? Well, because you follow in the footsteps of a Christ who suffered first. Don't fear what they fear. Don't be frightened. A quote from Isaiah 8, which sets the scene for God's chosen one, who will suffer for the people, but is blessed. Don't give in to the fear of the nations. In Isaiah, it was Babylon and Assyria. Don't be afraid of the great superpowers that live next door to your teeny tiny Israel nation. As Christians... What are we in Australia? People who go to church and read the Bible. 4% if we're lucky. Don't be afraid. Do good, Peter says. And what's the key to it? What's the key to it? 
in your hearts, verse 15, set apart Christ as Lord. In your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. That's just another way of saying be a Christian, isn't it? Now, does this describe you? Have you set apart in your heart one Lord, one King, one ruler? Jesus. That's what it means to become a Christian and to live as a Christian. To say, when it comes to the crunch and in every situation, I am going to live relying on and living for Jesus. He's my Lord. He's my King. He's my Saviour. Set Christ as Lord in your heart. And all this stuff will flow out. The life of beautiful goodness. One of the things that flows out is what you say, which is what the verse goes on to say. In your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Can you do that? Have you got five sentences that sums up why you have hope in Jesus? Notice the way it's expressed, by the way. To give an answer for the hope that you have. Two things to say about that. Firstly, it's an answer to a question. Why are you different? Why are you living this way? It's not actually a a front foot. Uh, Hi, can I tell you about Jesus? It's that your life is so good, so different to the world you live in, that people are, huh? Now, it's not always an eyebrows up question. You know, why are you living like this? I think someone's like, why are you living like this? It's an eyebrows down question. Huh? I don't get it. Why are you doing this? And the answer, point two, is a hope. See, because we follow in the footsteps of a Christ who suffered, our life is not all about this life. It is about this life, but it's about a realm of life that's started with being born again by the Spirit of God. Starting into an eternity like Christ's resurrection that goes on forever. We have a hope, something in the future. You go back to the very start of 1 Peter chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with a hope, a living hope, new birth into a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can't ever perish, spoil or fade. See, although we follow in the footsteps of a Christ who's suffered, our lives are grounded in what God has set apart for us in the future. And so when the question comes, why are you like this? The answer is not about us, but it's about what Christ has done and what he will do. It's about the hope that we have. Now, keep in mind that Christians are, you know, not perfect and especially not perfect at arguing and that we live in a world with blogs and forums and Facebook and the Sydney Morning Herald comments section. Uh, Just have a look at the way that this discussion happens. Be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have, but do this with argumentativeness and hostility. Oh no, hang on. Uh, But do this, verse 15, with gentleness and respect. See, just like in fifth grade debating, when you had manner, matter and method, the content of our hope, be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have, The way that we speak about the Lord Jesus, about the Christ who suffered for us and the hope that we have, the way that we speak is part of the message. Now, you know that's true in every 
conversation. The way that someone speaks to you, the way that they treat you as a person is part of the message that they're getting across. That's why people knocking on your door at terrible times of the day, you never want to listen to them. doesn't matter what they say, just the fact that they're annoying you is part of the message. When we speak about Christ, the way we speak, as well as what we say, is part of the message. Gentleness and respect. Notice that they're relational terms. We speak with people. We do this, verse 16, keeping a clear conscience so that people who speak maliciously against our good behaviour in Christ might be ashamed of their slander. It's a high hope, isn't it? That you speak so kindly and beautifully about Christ that people will be ashamed of what they've said of you? I don't think we can realistically expect this, this side of Jesus' return. So the way that each of these three sections flows through has the same pattern. It's about living in the real world where there's suffering for Christians who do good. It's about realising what the real Lord is like. And it's about living with one eye on the judgement that is to come. The real world, the real Lord and the real judge. Second section, also about suffering in the footsteps of a Lord who suffered for us. Starting at uh, verse 17, we're getting to the good stuff. It is better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. This is Peter's reprise on chapter 2. He said this before. If you get in trouble for doing the wrong thing, well, you deserved it. So suck it up. The earthly authorities were put there by God and they're good. Submit yourself to them. But there's another element to this, isn't it? If you're going to continue to do good, which is what Christians do, because that's what God has made us for and brought us to life in this realm of the Spirit, if we're going to do good, verse 17, it's better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. What's the implication? That sometimes doing good in this world leads to suffering. Sometimes doing good in this world leads to suffering. Do you believe that? What sort of doing good would lead to suffering? Well, our example is, for a start, Jesus. Jesus is the perfect example of the one who did good. Not did well, did good. He did good things. To the sick, he healed them. To the hungry, he fed them. To those who were lame, he made them walk. To those who needed sin forgiven, he gave his own life that they might live. Jesus did good. Jesus went to the place which should have been the heart of pure religion, to the temple in Jerusalem. He did what was good and pointed people back to the God who loves his people and gave himself for them. But when Jesus did good, he suffered. His family thought he was crazy. His disciples turned away from him. Verse 18 sums it up, doesn't it? Christ died for sins, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. What a beautiful summary of the gospel. I mean, if you're looking to prepare an answer for the hope that you have, that's a pretty good one. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins. That's why Jesus died, because 
there's sin in the world. There's sin in the brokenness of creation, which comes from broken people. Our ancestors, spiritually Adam and Eve, they are just examples of what we are like. People who heard God's good command, lived in God's good world, but essentially ignored him. And we live in a world that is full of sin. On a massive scale, the world's broken. On a minute scale, I am broken. Even the things I want to do which are good, I can't do them. I fail people in relationships. We hurt one another. Sin is living in God's world without recognising him as God. And Christ died for sins, to deal with sin. How did it happen? Verse 18 explains it. This is gold. The righteous for the unrighteous. The perfect, Jesus, for the unrighteous, us. This is the heart of the Christian message. I deserve nothing. Christ was perfect for me, for you. Have you heard this message before? That although you deserve God's judgment, the righteous one stood in your place. The fire of God's wrath burned on Jesus so that you could be free to call God Father. To be alive. Christ died for sins once for all. Once for all. If you are tempted to think that perhaps Christ only died for people better than you, read this verse. Christ died once for all, not like the Old Testament sacrifices which had to happen again and again and again because they were done by imperfect people with imperfect animals. No, Christ died once. The perfect sacrifice to take away the sins of the world for all, for you. With the purpose that you could be brought to God. See how verse 18 puts it? Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The the purpose that God has behind sending his son to die is not simply that justice be done, although that's part of it, but that God would have relationship restored with those he loves. God is personal. He longs to know you and relate to you perfectly. And he can't do it while we turn our backs on him and reject him as the king that he is. The good life is life under God's rule, the purpose for which Christ died. Now, the tail end of verse 18 is where the troubles start. Christ was put to death in the body, but raised by the spirit. Have a look at it. See what you think it means. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the spirit. Tell you what it can't mean. It can't mean that Jesus had a body and a spirit and they were separate things. And when he died, the body died, but the spirit kind of floated around. And then on the resurrection, Jesus became spirit man. Not true. We know that's not true because Peter and the other disciples saw a physical Jesus after the resurrection. You know, the Jesus who ate things and the bread and fish didn't drop on the ground. The Jesus that Thomas could poke his fingers in Jesus' hands. I think the way that Peter talks about this is two realms, like I've already been saying. A realm of death. Jesus was put to death in the realm of the body. The realm of the body is the the life we live. Where the worst thing that can happen to you is death of your body. 
the realm of brokenness, the realm of inherited folly from Adam and Eve, of living in God's world and rejecting him. That's the way that Christ died. He was one of us, put to death in the body. But Jesus' resurrection was in the realm of the spirit, meaning the same spirit of God which breathed life into Adam and Eve at creation, the spirit which gives life raised Christ to a new life which began then and continues into eternity. Jesus was put to death in the body but made alive in a new way, a new way of life, a life that continues into eternity which we can be part of by faith in him. And it's in that realm somehow that verse 19 happens. Through the Spirit, Somehow Jesus goes to spirits in prison. Who are they? They're those who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And then you get a little bit of story about the ark. Now, there's a couple of theories about this. In fact, I've spent most of the week reading very random theories about this. Could be, could be, that while Jesus was dead but before he'd been resurrected he went back in time somehow because maybe God can do that to the time of Noah and preached through Noah or maybe it was the spirit of Christ the pre-incarnate Jesus before he became man speaking through the lips of Noah when Noah said God's going to judge the world because of what we've done Maybe that was Jesus preaching to the spirits in prison. But I think the problem with that is that the word spirits means spirits, not people. I reckon the best explanation is something to do with the first few verses of Genesis 6. The first few verses of Genesis 6 talk about these great spiritual people who aren't really accounted for in the first five chapters of creation. The Nephilim, men of renown, warriors of old. They seem to be, well, let's have a flick to it. Genesis 6, it's worth having a quick read. They seem to be mysterious. They seem to be big and awesome. Chapter 6 of Genesis is on page 6. The verse I'm looking at, verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were heroes of old, men of renown. The Nephilim come out of anywhere. Now, these are people, obviously, because they intermarry with other people. But the very next verse is the story of Noah, the background to the story of Noah. Can you see, can you see the great personal grievance of God? Verse 5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time. What a condemnation on a good creation. I think that when Peter says that the spirit of Christ preached to the spirits in prison long ago who disobeyed in the days of Noah, it's something like this. I think it's spirits, not men, but I think it's something about evil that was around in the days of Noah. Don't really understand it, 
But I can tell you what the point that Peter is making. Come back to 1 Peter. Because this is one of those times when we can sit around for the next two hours thinking about the spirits in prison and realise that we don't actually know exactly what it means. But we can tell a whole bunch of things from this little insight into Noah. Are you ready? Firstly, verse 20, God waited patiently. Literally, God's patience waited. God is patient with those who sin violently against him, who turn away from him. God is patient. First thing we know, the Noah story. God is patient with sinners. Secondly, God saves people. It's an important thing to remember. We don't save ourselves. We don't initiate this thing. But God saves people. Thirdly, only a few people are saved. Only a few people are saved. The story of Noah is meant to remind us that not everyone turns to God when they have the opportunity. God waits patiently. God saves. Only a few are saved. And fourthly, it's through Jesus that people are saved. Yes, Noah was saved because he built a boat. And then when it rained, the boat saved him. But actually, the water symbolises baptism that saves you, not just washing away of dirt or even of sin, but verse 21, baptism saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As the gangplank comes down on the ark and Noah's family walk outside, it's a, it's a foretaste of resurrection. They've been through death. God saved when everyone was judged, God saved a few and gave them new life. Incidentally, after the flood was the time when people could eat meat. So salvation is really good. But even though we may not know exactly who the spirits in prison are, there are things that we learn from this little section. That God does save. He's patient. He saves a few and he saves through Christ. Notice that this section, as well as the first and the third, end with a note of judgment. That the real world, where Christians suffer for doing good, as they follow this real Lord Jesus, has an eye on judgment. Look at the end of the chapter. Verse 22. Jesus has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Whatever happens with Noah and the flood, the point here is that Jesus has come and lived and died and risen and ascended. It's essentially an early version of the Apostles' Creed. He came, he lived, he died, he descended, he rose, he ascended. This is about Jesus. There's nothing that's not subject to Jesus. So if you're suffering for doing good, don't forget that Jesus who died is also Jesus who judges. Take hope. Finally, third section, living in the real world, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, in the footsteps of the Christ who suffered, needs an attitude reminder for Christians. What's the attitude of those who follow Jesus? It's there in verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. Do you have the same attitude as Jesus? I love, just as a bloke, by the way, that it says, arm yourself with the same attitude. Like, I'm ready. I'm, 
guns up or whatever it is. It's, it's a call to action. It's a call to get ready. It's a call to be prepared for the fight that's on. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. You kind of got to grit your teeth and get ready for what's going to happen. Because he who suffered in his body is done with sin. What do you think that means? He who suffered in the body is done with sin. On one hand, it's pretty obvious. When you die, you can't sin anymore. Christ suffered. He died. You suffer and die. You won't sin anymore either. Unfortunate though, because you can't do anything then. I think baptism helps us understand this. Uh, have you ever been to a baptism? Have you seen a baptism? Down at Erco Church, we baptize kids every second or third week because it's prolific down there. Um, but at a baptism, for little kids, the godparents speak on behalf of the child. For grown-ups, if you want to get baptized, and by the way, if you haven't, get baptized. It's great. It's a chance to stand up and say what you believe about this great Christ. At your baptism, you, you say promises like this. Someone will say, do you turn to Christ? And you'll say, I turn to Christ. Do you renounce evil? I renounce evil. It's a picture of turning away from sin and towards God. And the baptism is a reflection of the sin being washed away and the new life rising up out of the water. The attitude of being done with sin is the attitude of the person who says, I renounce evil. If you've set apart Christ as Lord in your heart, if you are a person for whom Christ died and he's your Lord, you've essentially said, I am dead to sin. Now, if I say that up here and you know me, you're kind of snickering in the back of your head, right? He's not dead to sin. We know exactly what he's going to be like. Impatient where he should be patient. Short-tempered because he's a ranger. All those sorts of things. But this is... The attitude. It's an attitude that says, I might have been like that before, but now that's no longer who I am. My intention is to live for Christ. I'm dead to sin. This is you if you're a Christian. Your attitude is to grit your teeth and say, I'm dead to that way of life. Because I follow a Christ who suffered. It's not just that you stop doing one thing. See what verse 2 says? You actually live for something. As a result, this person doesn't live the rest of their life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. That's disappointingly open-ended, isn't it? What's God's will for you? Well, it depends who you are. You've been made beautifully different to the person next to you. God has given you beautifully different opportunities to live for him in every way. In the footsteps of the Christ who suffered for you and has been brought to life in this new realm where the spirit reigns. The spirit of goodness and kindness and gentleness and self-control and faithfulness. How can you be the person that God has called you to be? How can you live for God's will? Whatever it is, do it wholeheartedly. Peter looks back and says... You once lived like this, and you know, verse 3 is a pretty Roman description of the bad life. You've spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do, living in first century Roman style, just enough eating and drinking and being drunk and sexually immoral that are just 
oozes out the windows. But verse 4 is just a picture of what it's like to be a Christian now, isn't it? You see verse 4? They think it's strange that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And they heap abuse on you. Does that happen to you as a Christian? On after work drinks on Friday? No, thanks. Two's enough. Like, what are you, crazy? Eight's not enough. Come on. What are you, an idiot? What are you, a party pooper? And they heap abuse on you. I was driving on the M2 today, and part of it's got roadworks at 60, so I set the cruise control for 60. It was like I was standing still. There was a guy behind me in a Nissan patrol flashing his lights at me, tooting his horn. Like, dude, I'm going at 60. If he could have got out, he would have said, you're an idiot. You can go at 100 here. They think it's strange that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And they heap abuse on you. But living in the real world, trusting in the real Lord, We keep an eye on the real judge, verse 5. They'll have to be ready to give an account to him who is the judge of the living and the dead. One of the beauties of the gospel is the same Jesus who died is the Jesus who will judge. It's impossible to stand on the last day before Christ, the judge, and plead that he's never done anything for you. The Christ who died and who rose again is the Christ who is the judge of all people. I want to finish tonight just by reading from John chapter 5, if you'd like to follow along. Flick back to John chapter 5, it's on page 1054. 1054. As we prepare ourselves uh, to remember Jesus' death for us in the Lord's Supper, Hear these words from John 5, starting at verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. The father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he'll show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whomever he's pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honour the Son, just as they honour the Father. He who doesn't honour the Son doesn't honour the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He's crossed over from death to life. I tell you the truth, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, So he's granted the son to have life in himself and he's given him authority to judge because he is the son of man. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you again for your word that you show us more and more of who you are and what you've done in your son and by the power of your spirit. We thank you that Christ has gone before us, lived in the real world, that he has suffered as he lived the good life that you call us to live. We thank you that Christ has suffered in our place on the cross. We thank you that you have raised him to life and seated him at your right hand with authority to judge the world. Lord, we pray for our hearts and our minds and our lips 
that you would prepare us to follow in the footsteps of the Christ who suffered for us. And we pray this, that you would be honoured. Amen.